Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. You might remember a couple weeks ago we got into the first nine verses of this chapter 42. Now we'll back up a bit for context and cover these verses again down to verse 17. And the reason is you have a song in verses 10 through 17 uh, built from what is revealed in the first verses. But those verses also connected to the verses prior, so that's why I covered it then as well. Now back to remembering where we are in the Bible as far as the timeline goes. Isaiah is a long book, so it's easy to forget the chronology of events. 66 chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah ministers for almost 60 years as a prophet. Started as a young man and died an old man. When he began, the first 30 to 35 years, he was prophesying as the northern kingdom was taken by Assyria completely. The southern kingdom, Judah, threatened by Assyria, delivered by God, and then a 15-year gap. The first 30 to 35 years goes to chapter 39. Then, basically where we started in chapter 40, when we started again after the summer, 15 years have gone by. Assyria is losing power. Babylon is rising. Now, it didn't happen overnight that one nation took over. Militarily, they didn't have air power and things that could make them come and occupy immediately and run it. But it was clear that Babylon was growing and would be the threat now, coming westward and eventually going to take Judah. So, in this period of Isaiah's ministry, he is warning Judah that Babylon's coming. And he forecasts a hundred years into the future, long after he dies, that Babylon will have taken them, exiled them, and then for 70 years they'll be exiled. So he's forecasting 170 years into the future, and then he forecasts that this man Cyrus, without naming him by name, who will be of Persia, will then take over Babylon, and the Jews will return. And of course, this happens exactly as the prophet predicts. Isaiah died at least by historic tradition, at the hands of his own grandson, who was the next king after Hezekiah, Manasseh. So that's a bit of a reminder where we are in the chronology. He's now, in the passage before us, speaking to Judah so that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, reminded of the servant of God who would come, Messiah, and give them something that would be timeless for their time, especially in exile to come. And then it's timeless for all of us because it forecasts Jesus and his ministry, and it reminds us how he has brought light and justice, among other things. Redemption, ultimately, but light and justice are the things that are really focused upon in this servant song. Now, with that rather lengthy but necessary introduction, I want to turn you to God's Word as I read this passage, these 17 verses, The first nine you'll notice expressing, revealing the servant of God who we know to be Christ. And then verses 10 through 17, a song because of Christ, because of the light and justice and redemption brought. Here as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, 
in a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, and pass paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Let's bow together and pray. Lord God, the world is a dark, dark place without your light to shine the way for us. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the nations, and we sing praise to you. Grant us, your people, a renewed trust in you, O Christ, and your word, that we might be heralds of the gospel in a dry and dark and weary land. For we long to see the whole earth sing a new song to the Lamb and give you the glory that you so deserve. Help us to understand and to apply your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What a passage before us, and this is something we could say about every passage we read in Scripture, but in, my, in Isaiah especially. Uh, the loftiness of the language and the vision we have before us. This is the first of three servant songs. Uh, the servant of God was supposed to be Israel, but Israel failed. And so God is raising the servant, 
the servant who will fulfill the covenant obligations that Israel failed at. The servant is Christ, and we know this because of how it unfolds in the rest of this book. But the motif or the metaphor that you keep seeing over and over again in Scripture, in old, the Old Testament into the New, is that of light and darkness, and we can relate. It's awful to be in the dark. It's scary to be in the dark. Dangers lurk in the dark, and you can't see them, so you fall into them. We have to have light. Light is what God brings, and only, light, only God can provide it. And the world needs it. And I think that we live, especially in our country, in a day of growing darkness. And so it's all the more important for the people of God to be in the light of Christ, under his light, what he reveals, and proclaim that light. I mean, there may be no day more important for us in our context to be about the light of God's word than right now. This, this may be the most critical time for the church to dig in to the light because there's so much darkness around us. Who will bear the light? If God's people won't bear the light, the answer to the world's troubles is the light of Christ. And that gives us reason to sing. He brings light and he brings justice and ultimately redemption. And that is the reason to sing. It's the most important reason to sing. This motif of light and darkness. When David wrote Psalm 119, the Lord put into his mind by his spirit to write the word Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He calls his word, God's promises, his commandments, his revelation, light. Then we come to the New Testament. And the Apostle John writes of Christ, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's comparing the word of God with deity here. What does he mean? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light, the light, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ is that light. God himself come, the servant of Jehovah, forecasted in Isaiah. Later, Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Nobody can answer the darkness of our day except for Christ and Christ's word that he has given to us. He being the word and the scripture being the word about the word. John writes towards the end of his life in one of his epistles, the apostle John again, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness and light, light and justice, Christ's redemption, this is why we sing. This is the motive for our singing. This is what makes us rejoice. This is the message that we bear to the world. Look at the first nine verses with me once again. So we see God's answer to our troubles, the answers to the troubles of the world. Christ who sheds light to reveal truth. God's servant has been forecasted throughout Isaiah. We're up to chapter 42, but you, hopefully, you, hopefully you remember. In chapter 6, we learned of Messiah's eventual ministry to the Jews. In Isaiah 7, a lot about the coming Christ, the virgin who will conceive. We know, reading this every time at Advent, Emmanuel, God with us, a stumbling block for the Jews. Isaiah 8, we know that the Messiah would come in ministry to the Jews, and they would reject him. 
chapter 9, another big chapter about Messiah. He would be called the mighty God, wonderful counselor, different than any other priest, prophet, or king that had come before now, mighty God we're talking about. In chapter 11, Isaiah forecasts that Messiah would be a descendant of Jesse and that God's spirit would be specially upon him. In chapter 22 of Isaiah, Messiah would have the key of David. In chapter 25, he would defeat death. In chapter 26 and 35, he would bring knowledge and healing and even resurrection. And we come to chapter 40 of Isaiah where Messiah, we see again, would be God himself. He would forgive our sins, our iniquities, and he would carry us like a shepherd. The metaphor now before us of God as light who brings justice, that's prevalent in Scripture. You remember in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them was shown a light. You have Israel eventually going to be taken by Babylon. Things are not going well. They're very dark in Israel. Manasseh is a terrible king, the grandson of Isaiah the prophet. Terrible times in that country. Awful times. What did the people of God need? They needed the revelation of God. They needed the light of God. And that's always what the people of God need in dark times. And we are in dark times. We need God's word to prepare us for whatever will come and to remind us that he is victorious. Look at verse 1 as we see two concepts woven together. In fact, for just a moment, you have, I purposely put that whole passage in front of you because I'm going to say the name of the verse and I want you to look there. Before we go into the verses section by section, I want you to see two principles woven together, light and justice, justice and light. And by justice, we don't mean here liberation from oppression as it's somehow been said firstly. Certainly that kind of thing would come from the gospel first as we're liberated from our sins. But justice here has to do with showing the truth to it. You go to a court for justice so we know the truth because the truth is what we need to be set free. So justice has to do with shining the light of truth on something so that the rightness of something can be known. That's what what is meant in context, and you'll see it. Verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is God the Father talking about God the Son. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice. So when God visits, justice will be one of the results. Bring justice to the nations. When his light is shown, the truth will be known. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This is his first coming. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick, again, the metaphor of light, though he will be rejected by man, he will be despised, though he will be beaten and eventually killed, the wick, the light, will not be quenched. He will faithfully bring forth justice. His presence brings justice. His presence shows light, exposes lies, exposes deception. We can see what is true and what is not when he comes. That's how he brings justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged, unlike us who grow weary and faint, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Look down at verse 6 for the motif justice and light. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. This is God talking to God the Son. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. You can't see when it's dark. 
So when he brings light, the blind can see to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who do what? They sit in darkness. Down to verse 16. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Verse 17, I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. Notice how this theme of Jesus' appearing is light, and when he comes, there is justice. They go together. As light comes, we know the truth, and things can be made right. Now, they won't all at first just because light's shown. It's God's process of bringing these things to pass. But wherever you find yourself in darkness, it's the same answer. The light has to be brought to bear there. If there's any doubt that Isaiah was forecasting the ministry of Jesus here, it's laid to rest when Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. That's the part about not saying it too loudly. He doesn't come screaming at this first time. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant who I have chosen. It quotes this portion of Isaiah 42. Brothers and sisters, the human condition is always troubled. That's the truth of it. Sin entered the garden near the very beginning, and so our experience as human beings is commonly a struggle. In darkness is the best description for what we are in apart from God making himself known to us. We cannot know God in a saving way, in a way that gives us full light of his counsel unless he reaches out to us with revelation. We know there is a God because we can see creation. But we're too darkened to see past that, to know the God of creation. The trouble for all people in all times, and especially we see in Isaiah's time, it's no different. It's darkness. Isaiah was writing to a people who were under the oppressive hand of a foreign kingdom, but they were under their own sin and disobedience and their lack of knowledge of the word that was spoken, that was delivered, that was forecasted, who would come. Did their God care, they wondered? Would he keep his covenant promises? What's the answer for their anxiety, for their doubt, for their worry, their insecurity? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, in verse 1. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Finally, they would receive a covenant head who would be the delight of God. Unlike Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, or whomever, they were all flawed as covenant heads or covenant successors, those who took the promise of God to the next generation. They failed, every one of them, but God keeps his covenant in sending Christ. God's servant has God's spirit upon him. It says, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And he'll do this as he pours out his ministry of truth. Think of what he does when he comes to earth. He speaks the truth. He gives understanding. He exposes deception. He points out where there are lies 
all the while accomplishing his, his major goal of delivering from sin. It's a ministry of truth as he brings this justice. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make his, it heard in the street. He just comes and he does his mission. His light will not go out. He will bring forth justice by shedding this light. He won't grow faint or be discouraged, verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth, which, by the way, goes on. He continues to, from the right hand of the Father, extend his kingdom. Now, there will be pockets of darkness that arise that need the word of truth brought to bear there. And we may experience that in our life. Certainly we are to some degree. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. He's talking to the servant. He's talking to God the Son. He's declaring to all that he is the God of creation. He has created and ordered all these things, and it is he who sends the one or calls the one who will bring the light that we need. And he will give Jesus as a covenant to the, for the people. So not only will Jesus bring light, he will bring sacrifice. Covenant means to cut. It has to do with commitment that God has made. Jesus will be that covenant. For a moment, I want you to just think about how important it is that the light be shown on things. It's a theme that keeps repeating in Scripture, so certainly it has to be what we're about as a people, right? It has to be what we are as Christians, to shed light on things. And we think of how important that is in, in the context of our church community. We try to find every way we can to bring the light of God's Word to bear. Why? Because all of us need interpretive lenses uh, uh, to see through so we can understand what's happening in the world. I mean, where would this be more important than in the training of our children? in the helping them to see and reconcile the things that, that are going on. And especially in the darkness of our day, don't we need, like no other time, to make sure that we are shored up in this so that somebody, when the darkness really descends, can say what the light is for the sake of all mankind, not just for our own preservation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about the state of the affair of the world, which we'll see is similar. He said, even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Light. We're shining light onto this veiled gospel perception on the part of the world. Now, God opens the hearts. As many as are appointed, he brings to eternal life, but we proclaim Christ. We shine Christ into the world. For the world, Christ, we sing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're about. This is why God has saved us, is to praise his name by glorifying him and proclaiming him. Paul says, furthermore, in 2 Corinthians 4, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The ministry of our church must be a ministry of shining the light of Christ into the world. The ministry of all of our families have to be about the same thing. It has to be intentional. We have to think about it. We have to commit ourselves to it. We cannot assume it'll just happen, even just sitting here in church for an hour and a half every Sunday, going to Sunday school. We have to be about it all the time. 
I was halfway through this sermon, and I got an email from Nathan, whose daughter's in ninth grade at our school, Heritage. And running a school is hard. It's not easy. On everybody involved, it's just a lot of labor. It's just tough. And you all are part of it just by being in this church. But every once in a while, the Lord will really give you something that encourages you about the mission and what we are trying to do, all of us. And it relates exactly with what I'm talking about here. Listen to what our ninth grade English teacher wrote to the parents of that class. Good afternoon, ninth grade parents. We are nearing the end of the first quarter and the days are flying by. I continue to enjoy your children very much every day. I wanted to share with you a particularly striking experience God blessed me with today. As you know, we are in the middle of the Lord of the Flies. I bet you we all had to read that book, right? The pig on the stake shows the depravity of man, what happens with no authority. And the two chapters that we discussed today were very intense. Today, we were discussing the idea that in the dark, situations are confusing, and it is difficult to discern true details. We talked about how Christ is the light of the world and that darkness cannot overcome light. As we discussed this concept in relationship to the events of the novel, one of the students mentioned that these truths come from John 1, 1 through 18, which they memorized last year in eighth grade. The entire class then recited these verses for me from memory, and I can honestly say I think it's the most poignant moment I have ever experienced in all of my years of teaching. There was something eternal about this moment when the voices of teenagers who have walked this earth little over a decade were proclaiming in unison, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, without Him nothing was." Nothing was made that, was, that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And they continued for 14 more verses. The teacher says, I wish my words could do this experience justice, but they are just not adequate. They were not just roguely reciting it. They were proclaiming a truth. All I can say is that I held it together as the word of God went forth from the mouth of these children in my classroom. And I then shed tears of awe, joy, and thankfulness once I was on my own in my kitchen at home where they wouldn't think I was weird. She says to the parents of the ninth graders, but I say it to you, the church that is working hard to provide a school like this and for families are trying to do this in your homes and all the ways that you're doing it, the endeavor we're all part of, But she says, please join me in praising our Lord and Savior for all these truths. Today I am also thanking him for all all of you parents, your churches, and all the teachers of HCA, all who are pointing towards Christ, towards truth and light that darkness cannot overcome. Your children brought this light of Christ into my classroom today and will in turn reflect this light to others as they walk out into the world. That is the mission of all of us in the church expressed so beautifully in the context of our school. Verse 5 in our text again, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations." The servant is clearly Jesus. He cannot just be a prophet. It's not the nation of Israel. 
He is a messenger of the covenant, as Malachi refers. And Franz Dalich, the commentator, says the servant of Jehovah must be that one person who was the goal and culminating point to which from the very first the history of Israel was ever pressing on. That one who throws into the shade not only all the prophets, all that the prophets did before, but all that had ever been done by Israel's priests and kings. That one who arose out of Israel for Israel and the whole human race. In verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons who sit in darkness. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the reason we sing. Jesus is the reason we proclaim God's praises. We could not know God if he did not come to us and free us by shedding light, by bringing justice, and paying for all of our sins. Now I want you to look at the song that is written in response to who Jesus is, starting at verse 10. We see the reason for our redemption. There are many benefits to redemption. But the main reason we have been redeemed is so that we can do what verse 10 says. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Please recognize this is not just about Israel being saved. Israel served as God's seed nation to bring Jesus It was always the intention of God at the moment of his declaration of redemption to bring blessing to the world by saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so when he promises to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to all the nations, we see it in fulfillment even here in the time of national Israel's life. As Isaiah says, there will be a time when the servant comes and sheds his light and everyone from all corners of the earth, they will proclaim God as God and Jesus ultimately as Lord. It says his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Why do we sing this? Because of Christ, the light he brings, the justice he brings, the redemption he provides. Verse 11, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar inhabits. So the known world he's citing now, places that were known, let the inhabitants or the habitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountains. He wants the known earth, uh, a figure of the whole earth, all giving praise. Let them give glory to the Lord, verse 12, and declare his praise in the coastlands. Moitir says, this is a call for world praise in response to the worldwide work of the servant. A summons for everyone on earth to sing praise to God. When you come to worship, this is a public worship service. Because we want everybody to see what we're doing in this sense, giving praise to God alone. Uh, The message from the church should be, we praise God through Christ. I mean, there's more messages. But ultimately, when they see us, what do they think? What are they doing? They're worshiping God. Who's God? God's the creator who stretched out everything. He measured everything and put it in it. And he redeemed sinners through Christ. Why? So we can do what we were made to do, which is to worship him. We won't ever be happy or joyful if we don't understand what our purpose is, what our design is. And our design is to bring glory to God. That's where we will find our most joy. That's where we will enjoy God forever. Psalm 33, David writes, Sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with shouts of joy. In Psalm 96, again, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name tell of his salvation from day to day. 
lots of complexities in our day, there's no question, but it's, it's simple enough for us as a church. What do we do? Let's proclaim Christ. Christ for the world we sing. Christ we bring. Whatever the cost, we bring this message to bear to the world before us. What's the reason for missions? What's the reason for doing this? To see all people everywhere give praise to God. Verse 13 of this servant song. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Often the prophets will use these war figures because Israel was in a state of complete weakness. Um, Assyria was the nation in power, and then now Babylon, eventually Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, but not the Jews any longer. And so this picture of their God being this mighty conqueror, this mighty savior, uh, is invigorating to them to understand that they are on the side of the one who can crush all foes. And the servant's not a sniveling, begging messiah who stands outside your house and meekly knocks, hoping you'll answer the door. It says, verse 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up zeal, he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Verse 14, God says, for a long time I have held my peace. He's let things unfold in Israel, and he does this. He'll let periods of time unfold. For a long time I have held my peace. I've kept still, restrained myself. Periods, he's long-suffering, brothers and sisters. He lets lots happen before he comes down, and he visits with his justice and judgment. People say, how oh, harsh. He's so patient. He's given so much time, so many years in the time of Judah and in the time of America, for that matter. So patient, so gracious, so long-suffering. He is not quick to anger. For a long time I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. This buildup in pregnancy to when it finally comes to fruition in the pain involved. But now it will come forth. There will be delay before final redemption, but it will only last a while. And then verse 15, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation, and I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Creation will undergo a metamorphosis. This is not an exhaustive explanation of how the new heavens and the new earth are formed, but rather just showing God's complete transformation of all things when he exacts himself in the final times. Verse 16, and I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, and paths that they have not known, and I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. God's ways will be made manifest in the fullness of time. This is a long, stretched out plan. We're only in the midst of it somewhere. But we can be sure what will come to pass. Just as Isaiah's people could be sure that the servant would come, that the servant would bring light, that the servant would bring redemption and be their shepherd. And it came to pass. And we know because that happened that what he says that is yet unfulfilled, it will come to pass too. And the people of God can have courage under that. These are the things I do, verse 16, and I do not forsake them. I will do these things. They're turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols. Remember the beginning of this discussion, and it repeats, is God's opposition in chapter 41 to the idols that people were creating, things they were trusting more than him. And he was showing how foolish and delusional it is to to worship those things, to give devotion to those things that are just created things. And he says at the end of all this revelation he gives about the servant, if you're still holding on to idols, you will be brought to shame. That's what's going to come. 
They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our God. Chapter 41 says, behold, and he rips apart the idols. Behold these idols. Chapter 42 says, behold, my servant. Idols, Jesus, which will you choose, essentially, and in human terms? Oswald, who comments on this passage, says, if he can deliver Judah from all its captivities, then there is no one whose distress and difficulty is beyond his care in his delivering power. The church needs to be courageous about the light that we've been given to shine, no matter what it costs us. If he could deliver and deliver and deliver and deliver again and again for his people, he could surely deliver his people, even under the midst of great darkness and distress. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Finally, I chose three songs, three hymns that had to do with singing. The first was, listen to the words, come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord. And thus surround the throne. And thus surround the throne. The reason we sing is Christ. Then the second song that we sang. Christ for the world we sing. The world to Christ we bring. With fervent prayer, the wayward and the lost, by restless passions tossed, redeemed at countless cost, from dark despair. And then in a moment, at the Lamb's high feast, we sing praise to our victorious King who has washed us in the tide flowing from his wounded side. Praise we Christ whose love divine gives his sacred blood for wine, gives his body for the feast, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. There is one reason that stands above all reasons to sing, and the reason is Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, you call upon us to sing a new song. Lord, we want your praise to be heard from the end of the earth. We want everyone to give you glory, O Lord, and declare your praise in all the earth. For us, O Lord, we need your courage, we need your boldness, we need your strength that we might proclaim Christ as a light, starting in our church, in our homes, all the ministries that we are about, and then extending from this place with purpose so that all could look upon your people and be drawn to you, your Son who provides light, justice, and redemption. Pray this for your name's sake, that your glory would be made known. In Jesus' name, amen.